Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. This is your host, Stephen Novella. Today is Wednesday, September 7th, 2005. With me tonight are Evan Bernstein. Good evening, all. Bob Novella. Hello. And Perry DeAngelis. Hello. Our guest for tonight is Stephen Malloy, who is the publisher of JunkScience.com. He'll be joining us in just a few minutes. But first, a couple of quick segments, some follow-up on uh, some previous items that we discussed. You guys all remember the haunted dolls for sale on eBay. Yes. Well, a listener, did, yes. a listener sent me a link for a haunted phone for sale on eBay. Cool. Uh, the link will be on our website. But it's uh, the, a, essentially a red rotary phone, like a 1950s, 60s model telephone. Mm-hmm. And a long, long story to go along with the item. Uh, apparently, it's very sinister looking because it's red and it has like the, the number on it is number 666 and it was inspected by inspector number 666. <laughs> well, there you go. And... You know the usual stories. I left it on the table. And the next thing I know, it was it was somewhere else, or the statue of the Virgin Mary I had next to it was found broken on the floor. Isn't this a Twilight Zone episode? Right. <laughs> there was haunted phone or something. The worst though was the worst was the seller claimed that at one point in time there was a burn mark all around the phone, as if wow. something had. Like there was a radiation of heat. The phone itself was pristine, was not was unharmed, but the table all around the phone had a burn mark on it. So well, it's kind right. of like a spontaneous telephonic combustion type of <laughs> Telephonic combustion. Uh, although the phone itself didn't combust. It kind of reminded me of that scene from Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark, you know, where, they, where the, the Nazi symbol on the crate just sort of burned. But the if you look at the picture... The burn outline of the phone is not quite perfect. You know what I mean? It doesn't exactly follow the edge of the phone on the table. Like you, are you, are you like it was man-made. Right, like so, like it was created around the phone rather than, you know, because if you if you any kind of radiation that's blocked by an object should produce a pretty perfect silhouette on the item behind it. And this was, I'll just say, it was less than perfect. Uh, but it was going, the bid was going for, I think, $80 or something. Is it still uh, up for auction, Steve? You no, know, the auction had completed. Uh, so, yeah, interesting, you know, that uh, the haunted items are branching out on eBay. This one was, you know, I thought particularly humorous. It was kind of cheesy, a red phone with the number 666 on it. A demon phone. Wow. Also, a bit of follow-up from, before we go before we proceed with science or fiction, I have a follow-up from the last science or fiction from two weeks ago. Uh, if you recall, this was, the theme was the solar system, and the item which was made up was the discovery of an active volcano on Saturn's moon, Titan. <laughs> so, I know where you're going with this. I did some more research just to see if there's anything else out there that I may have missed, and it turns out a, couple, a few things came up. So I, you know, I had claimed that the only active volcanoes in the solar system are on Earth and on Jupiter's moon Io, because Jupiter's moon Io is close, is close enough to the planet that the tidal forces from Jupiter actually push and pull and stretch Io so that it's constantly molten and there's active volcanoes and the planet's basically turning itself inside out. Well, Saturn's smallest moon, Enceladus, also has active volcanoes on it. 
and or Enceladus. I think it might be Enceladus. Um, although these volcanoes, it also is close to the Saturn and its tidal forces that it's thought to, to be the driving force behind the volcanoes. However, these vol- quote-unquote volcanoes are spewing ice because wow. Enceladus is an icy world. So not exactly you know lava, but spewing essentially ice. And there is a wispy sort of atmosphere around Enceladus, which is, I guess... Well, that's bizarre. I mean, yeah. if you've got the tidal forces... You'd think it would it would you know liquefy you know would create molten molten rock or ore and it would just spew that. So how could you how could you? The moon is probably mostly water and ice like Europa or Ganymede, at least towards the surface. That just seems pretty bizarre. There was another report of Neptune's largest moon, Triton, was found to have. What one astronomer called a volcano, but the other references I said refer to them as nitrogen geysers. So, not volcanic, again, not lava, not mountainous volcanoes, but geysers of nitrogen. And then finally, and this is just from a few, uh, a couple of months ago, and the report that I read was from July, so this is very recent. Uh, the Cassini probe has indeed found pictures of what looks like a volcano on Titan, mm-hmm. which was the, the specific example that I had used in the science or fiction. However, there's no direct evidence of an eruption, and it's, so there's no picture of it erupting. So uh, what's the bottom line here, Steve? Ha, but there's indirect evidence that it may be spewing <laughs> forth ice and ammonia. So you may have ice and ammonia volcanoes on Titan. So this invalidates your whole science or fiction from last well, year. Is that what you're saying? I said there the bottom line is that you know it's ambiguous at this point. There there are volcanic structures on Titan that may be there's indirect evidence they may be spewing ice and ammonia, not lava volcanoes, nothing like that. Right. All right. So we can just go back and say that we were all correct, <laughs> if you wish. Yes, <laughs> if that makes you feel better. So the story was just more complicated. I just had found some additional information. And fables. Very good. Looks like they, they need new ways to classify, you know, volcanic phenomena. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, right, is it right. a lava is one kind, ice is another? Ammonia, nit- nitrogen, right. sulfur, all kinds of things. And what's some when, when's a geyser or a volcano? Right. We need some volcanologists. Maybe we can call one on the show and uh, I have wonder them clarify for us. I wonder if you need the, um, the strong tidal forces to create, you know, a... A nitrogen volcano or, or nitrogen geyser. Do you need tidal stresses to do that, or can some other mechanism uh, produce that? That was the only one that I heard. I mean, so you either, you either have heat left over from your formation, some internal heat, or or there's got to be something that's producing heat. And other than tidal forces, I'm not sure what else would do that. Oh, don't forget radioactive decay. I mean, that's yes, that's yes, the that's main right. reason. You know, we our, haven't cooled off yet. Molded, right. right. It's time to play Science Science or Fiction. fiction. (laughs) So this week's Science or Fiction is going to be a little different than previous ones. It's still three items. One item is the correct answer, but it's more of a multiple choice question than two, two being legitimate, one being fiction. What I'm going to give you is three classic pseudosciences. The question is, is a historical question about these these pseudosciences. Which one had proponents that were actually on the correct side of a major scientific debate? So this, the, my theme for this week is right for the wrong reason. Hmm. 
which pseudoscientists, if you will, historically were on the correct side of a major scientific debate, even though, of course, their underlying belief system is, is still false and pseudoscientific. You ready? Do you understand the question? So some guy yes. believes that the Earth is round because a big monkey bent it around. Right. Correct. Okay. Right. Got it. Well, I assume it's not going to be obvious, you know, if you tell us something that he believed that we always I'm not telling you what the belief was, because that would be too obvious. I'm just telling okay. you, you know, one word. I'm going to give you three pseudosciences. You tell me, historically, which one of those three was actually on the correct side of a major scientific debate, and then I'll tell you at the end what the major scientific debate was. Okay. Okay, ready? Ready. The first one is astrology. The second one is phrenology. And the third one is homeopathy. All three uh, pseudosciences with which we are very familiar. Right, but they, these are definite pseudosciences. But you're saying someone in the past supported this, supported one of these phenomena? Some major um, proponents of either astrology, phrenology, or homeopathy were actually on the correct side of a scientific debate. They were proven correct over time. On one point that was integral to their belief system. Okay. But it didn't validate any of the pseudosciences in the process, right? No, everything else was still turned out to be wrong. It didn't validate the right. under the bottom line pseudoscience. Right. Just some subtle point for no, what it was it wasn't so subtle. It was a major component okay. of their of their belief system. Boy, I'm tending towards the uh, astrology I say, one. I say phrenology. Okay. Bumps on the head. Yeah. Go ahead, Bob. Take homeopathy. No, no, I, I'm taking phrenology okay. as well. Yeah. Um, I two phrenology and Evan for astrology. Evan, what, what do you think? Yeah, what do you, what do you, what you're thinking, Evan? No, because you know it, it's effectively, I believe, where the roots of astronomy um, did derive from, if I'm not mistaken, uh, was something closer to astrology as we as we recognize it today. Mm-hmm. Um, it just has a deeper history than I think either phrenology or homeopathy have, which are, by comparison, more re- much more recent phenomenon. So um, perhaps there was a lot more time there for the um, astrologers to have stumbled across something correct in regards to astronomy. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's why I'm going to guess okay. that. Perry, what's your thinking with phrenology? Oh, just that uh, since it involves... Uh, the head, it's and, and and bumps on the head. It's probably not too, you know, far of a leap to to think that they came up with something, all regarding um, brain, the nervous system, some, something mm-hmm. medical, that that was reasonable okay. in in a dark age. That's what I believe. Bob, similar? Or do you have anything more specific? Yeah, um, this week's is a little different in that you can't you can't use you know general you know critical thinking and scientific knowledge to kind of, uh, you know, divine an answer, you kind of, it looks like you're asking for a specific knowledge of, of something yeah. that you really need to make to make an answer, more so than than, uh, than usual, but for, I'm going with... This is more of a fundamentalist question than a, than a logic question. Right. Uh, well, I'm going with phrenology because I know that um, phrenology, when it was first developed, when it was first being uh, looked into and, and believed, it, there was a happy side effect uh, be- because people were so into phrenology and examining bumps in the head, it actually created a much more interest in, uh, you know, in the br- in the brain and the structure of the brain and, and different parts of neuroscience than was warranted at the time. So they actually had a, a nice increase in scientific knowledge that they wouldn't 
necessarily have had until you know may, maybe many decades later. You know, all caused by phrenology, mm -hmm. which you know, of course, is uh, ridiculous. Right. And, and different bumps meant different things, like different parts of the brain affect different things mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Right. And that sort of right. Well, phrenology is the correct answer. Um, and Perry, you're very, very, you're very basically on target with with your analysis. The the major scientific debate was whether or not the different functions of the brain were diffuse or compartmentalized. In other words, does everything that the brain does, you know, memory, motor function, vision, calculation, you know, remembering music, identifying objects, are those functions distributed throughout the brain sort of evenly? Or is there one piece of the brain that has a specific function? Is this piece of the brain the motor function, this piece of the brain vision? The phrenologists were, were supported the the side of that debate that said that the brain was compartmentalized and specialized. The, the, however, there was a major part of the, the medical, scientific, neurological community that said that that neurological brain function was diffuse. It turns out that the phrenologists were right. They were, they were on the correct side of that debate. Of course, all of the other components of their claim that if you use a certain part of the brain, like if you use the music part of your brain, that that part of the brain would grow bigger and would push the skull out, therefore creating a bump over the music part of your brain. That part is all incorrect. The brain does not actually change its size based upon usage, and like a muscle does. That was their analogy. It was sort of a false analogy to a muscle. Neither does the skull move out of the way of the brain. The brain's like jello. Skull pushes the brain into the sh into its shape. The brain does not push the skull into, into the brain shape. Doesn't it get more crinkly though, Steve? No, I mean the brain's as crinkly as it is. That, that's skull. a matter of, de not because of the no. Skull. That's not really true. I mean the brain just develops that way. All the the folds, you know, the, the gyri right. and sulci in the brain are formed that way because it's genetically programmed to form that way. Well, look, look at the look at the strapping that certain cultures do of the head. You know, because the, the skull is so malleable at an early age, you could, you could shape your head into pretty much anything you want it to look like. And, of course, the brain just blithely takes it in stride with no apparent deficits. The brain happily conforms to whatever shape your skull right, is. Right, whatever, whatever the container is. It's just the brain just kind of, you know, changes shape. Steve, I, Steve I thought I was, uh, you know, somewhat uh, on track with uh, the fact that, you know, phrenology caused I'm not more sure if that's even true, Bob. I've never read that in all of my reading about the, you know, the history of neurology or phrenology. That, that oh, do you want me to get yeah, a source? Yeah, sure. I mean, it may, it may okay. be true. I just have no, I, I've never well. encountered that claim, so I don't know if it's true or not. There, there was, there okay. was quite an interest in neurology without phrenology, um, and that debate was, was raging without the phrenologists as well, though um, the phrenologists were major players in that debate, you know, 250, 300 years ago. Well, my astrologer is advising me to not engage into this debate, <laughs> okay. so uh, I'll, now, I'll remain silent. Evan, your thing. reasoning was sound. I mean, astrology certainly is much, much older than either phrenology, which is about, or homeopathy, both of which are, you know, two to three hundred years old. Um, but astrology didn't, astrologers, ancient astrologers, they had a very, um, you know, pre-scientific view of the universe, of the stars and the planets, and they, they did not, they were not on the, the, the correct side of well, it seemed likely that they made a guess about something that was going on in the cosmos that they happened to stumble upon. It just seemed seemed, seemed like a reasonable. It was a reasonable guess. logic, but just, I think historically, just just not correct. Homeopathy was easy to get rid of because anyone oh, yeah. who believes in homeopathy couldn't possibly be correct about. Right, there's nothing. There's no <laughs> component of their. You know, homeopathy is is using. 
substances diluted to the point of literally non-existence. And the law of infinitesimals is so juvenile. It's pretty scientific. It really not, is. not to be believed. Right. Surprisingly, though, it, there was there was a, a, a happy side effect with homeopathy way back, in that you were much better off, you know, drinking pure water than uh, right. you know bloodletting. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, yeah okay. or some you other medicine they tried to shove into right. you at the time, which would definitely. At the you. time, they were experimenting with a lot of toxic minerals as for drugs. And they were all, you know, more harmful than good. So yeah, tr going from the medicine of the time to nothing, to basically water, was actually an advantage. I understand leeches are making a comeback. Leeches. <laughs> they are. Yeah, they're, they're awesome. In, in where? No, I understand. That's true. Where? <laughs> Really are. In Yale, Steve? Are they using them in Yale? Don't they feed on like necrotic tissue and things yeah. like that? Uh, bacteria? Really that's a, that's well, those are maggots, Bob. Uh, and they're, they're, you know, sometimes they will, um, I've never seen this done, but allegedly you can use maggots to essentially eat up all the dead tissue out of a wound. Right. To debris right. But in wound. a pinch, right. Are, 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 we're saying to use these alternatives in lieu of some of another option that doesn't exist at the time or place, right? I mean, aren't there better ways to deal with these things that leeches and maggots do in a in a mo in a modern uh, scientific medical setting? Depends setup? on what you mean by better. Um, well, that's for I you know I guess that's for no, the apparently. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to have maggots crawling inside my wound, so I'd I'd be happy with you know just a. a a surgeon with a scalpel debriding it if there were dead tissue there. But, right. but well, the maggots I mean, do a no, fine job of eating up all the dead skin. They eat it, they, and they don't eat any of the live skin, so it, it works. What's the, what's the negative part of the maggot chewing on you your maggots. maggots crawling on <laughs> 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 okay. the idea. It's what they you say, I, You're saying it's not a chick maggot. <laughs> you're saying it doesn't attract they the chicks. I, I saw a little hey, spot. I, I saw a show that had a little five-minute blurb on, uh, on that, you know, many moons ago, and... Uh, my, you know, my memory is telling me that it was that there was some application that was, you know, it was very efficient for that, you know, wasn't there was really almost I don't want to say no alternative, but it was it, it works so well for certain for certain applications. The maggots, you mean? It's, it, yeah. yeah, the maggots. That it would, the, the guy with the doctor was saying that. I mean, this is such an excellent treatment for this that uh, it's much much easier and um, and mm -hmm. much more specific than than even he could be with a scalpel, or something like that. Does that have to be prescribed? Not <laughs> you get a prescription. No, I don't think, so I don't think it's not a, it's not a FDA controlled drug. So no. Interesting. It's a it's a procedure, I guess. What does the FDA have to say about those know. kinds of things? I don't know. Not, mm. not nothing that I know of. Interesting. Well, let's uh, bring on our guest at this time. So with us this week is Steve Malloy. Steve is the publisher of JunkScience.com, a website dedicated to exposing bad science of all stripes. He's also an adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute and author of Junk Science Judo, Self-Defense Against Health Scares and Scams, as well as several other books on junk science. Steve, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've talked about your website previously on our show. We, we go there frequently to, uh, to look at the items. Uh, how, how long have you been doing this? Uh, we started JunkScience.com on, uh, fittingly, on April 1st, 1996. So mm -hmm. uh, we're actually in our 10th year. Great, now. great. And what, what got you interested in, wow. in this topic? Uh, you know, I used to work... Uh, for a guy who was a consultant to businesses on regulatory issues. And I started out uh, working on um, 
health risk issues, mm-hmm. and I have kind of a I had a unique background for uh, my boss. I, I have a background in public health as well as a, a law degree, so I was working with regulatory agencies, and I was working on a number of you know different health risk issues, and it struck me that. No matter what statistical analysis or scientific fact I took to the agency, they had often already made up their minds, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they just weren't open to better science or better analysis right. or facts or anything like that. And um, so then I I went and started my own business. I got a contract from the Department of Energy to do a study for them on the role of science in environmental policy. And it started to slowly dawn on me that you know, most most policy, especially in the environmental area, is not really based on science. It's just based on politics. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, from there, one thing led to another. I did my uh, a little book called Science Science Without Sense: The Risky Business of Public Health Research, which is a short, sort of tongue-in-cheek manual on how to do a, a health scare. And the publication of that was received pretty well in the public health community, and that sort of coincided with the rise of the Internet. So JunkScience.com was born. It was a natural extension of what you were doing. Yeah. Uh, similar with us, I think, yeah, we got into skepticism and pretty much you know, in the mid-'90s, right, at, as the Internet was becoming what it is. And it was natural for us to move more and more of our activities onto the Internet. It's a great way to, to reach people. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, ten years ago... Uh, someone like me had great difficulty trying to get uh, a, a message app, but with the internet, you know, I don't need a printing press. Right. All I need is a computer, and you know, all this stuff. Is and people will find you. What I find is people who are absolutely. interested in the topic that you're writing about will find you because they'll search for it. So, oh, absolutely. So you, you don't have to go out and get your message out. You just have to have it there. People will find it when they're when they're interested in it. Right. In the old days, you know, I would try to, I would have to try to have uh, maybe an op-ed or an opinion piece published in a newspaper, uh, which you know now is no problem. But ten years ago, when I was kind of unknown and had no track record or uh, you know reasons for anyone to publish anything right. I wrote, uh, you know, it was difficult. So the internet, you know, sort of helped, you know, helped me get where I am today. Mm-hmm. So you were also uh, an it says an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Right. Right. Now, the, the Cato Institute is a libertarian advocacy right. group. Right. Um, so it's it's hard not to notice the the intimate relationship between the <laughs> your, this junkscience.com and the Cato Institute. In fact, you have I've read your articles on both websites, often on the same topics. Yeah. So how much of this is intertwined your defense of good science, or I guess your attack of junk science or bad science, particularly how it relates to public policy. How much of that is tied to your political views? Uh, well, I tell you, when I first got into this business, I was completely apolitical. wasn't a Democrat, wasn't a Republican, didn't even know how to spell libertarian. <laughs> <laughs> and I really started going at this from you know, just looking at the science. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, once you get into junk science, it's more than you start out with the science, but then you have right. to look at uh, you know, okay, this is bad science. It's obviously bad science. Why would anyone, you know, advocate this or try to promote an agenda with this? And so you have to look at what's behind the bad science. And, you know, more often than not, uh, I find that the bad science is 
you know, a government agency, right. uh, some sort of social activist, um, a trial lawyer, you know, something of that ilk. I don't often find libertarians trying to impose, you know, their use use bad science to impose their views on people. Um, you know, it's not to say that you know on the on the right side of the political spectrum there aren't people that you know, try to use bad science, or certainly are. Mm -hmm. um, but um, you know, in my view, I don't I don't see good science with as being inconsistent with individual liberty and limited government. Right, right. But your, your views remind me a lot of John Stossel. Um, yeah, Stossel. You know, Stossel's a good friend of mine, and he'll tell you that. Uh, is that right? Know, right. He started out as a uh, consumer reporter, uh, mm -hmm. always sort of bashing industry, thinking that uh, you know the Ralph Nader viewpoint was correct. And you know, as he became more sophisticated and learned a few things, he you know he he flip flopped, and uh, you know now he's he's one of me. Right, he realized that the government, despite the best intentions, just by its, the nature of the beast, usually make makes things worse than better. Well, you know, people that I mean, ha you know, have an agenda, activists. I mean, they, in a lot of times, they'll just say and do anything um, to have their agenda implemented. And uh, you know, if it involves science, well, then there you go. That's where junk science comes from. Right. Now, of course, just as you know, we're skeptics, we're skeptical activists, if you will. We we defend quality science, you know, logic, and reason from people who have an agenda, whether it's political or social or religious. So I definitely see this as part of the, the same you know, ph skeptical philosophy that that we endorse. But there there are some issues where. Uh, I think that are still pretty thorny. There are not that many issues about which educated, um, I think, bright skeptics and scientists will disagree. I think the one that comes up a lot, especially recently, and is featured on your website is global warming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is a subject about which, you know, I think informed, well-meaning people can disagree. You have on, on your website the coyote... Kyoto count-up, where you're counting up how much money, it's now up to 83, almost $84 billion, billion dollars, is costing, I assume that's the world, that's yes, just the worldwide globally, cost, globally, right. globally, and its potential savings. Now, reading your various articles on global warming, it certainly seems like you're attacking a lot of the environmentalism uh, that is based upon claims of global warming, but and maybe I just haven't dug down deep enough yet, I haven't really heard you attack the concept of global warming itself, so I'm just wondering where you stand on just the science of global warming. Well, I, I guess, I mean, I, I think I've written about global warming so many times that, um, yeah, I, and I'm sure my editors at foxnews.com get tired of me writing about global warming, so I don't <laughs> always go over all the science all the time. Right. But we can certainly talk about it if you want. Uh, well, what's the bottom line? What do you think? What, well, what, I don't, I don't think that there's uh, anything close to being credible science showing that humans are adversely impacting global climate. I mean, can humans affect local climate? Sure. All you got to do is look at, you know, the, your, if you live in an urban area, your evening weather map, and you'll see that the urban area is warmer than the area surrounding that, and that's because of the urban heat island effect. Right. Does that, you know, does that local change, um, you know, can that can it become global climate change? Well, I don't really think that there's any evidence of that. I mean, 
you know, 99, more than 99% of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere are natural, not man-made. Uh, you know, there's lots like of... bovine flatulence. Yeah. There's that, lots of... That's part uh, of it. Climate is extremely complex. We can, we, you know, we still can't sure. even model clouds. Um, you know, the notion that we're going to, you know, that some, somehow uh, by reducing greenhouse gas emissions, we can adjust, you know, our, our uh, thermostat like you can in your house is crazy. And then when you look at the, the potential costs of doing this, you know, we, we live in a very, you know, an energy-hungry society, and our economy depends on energy. And the notion that we're going to somehow interfere with that process in, in some you know, more than likely vain hope of controlling climate just seems ludicrous to me. Well, the, of course, the, you know, the standard re- response um, is that... Oh, don't be shy. <laughs> well, I, I, um, this is an issue uh, you know, about which I am on the fence, although I will say that I think that there is sufficient evidence, I think, for concern. Uh, I, with it, the difficulty is knowing exactly what policies to make because uh, the implications are huge. I mean, the implications to our economy, right. to the world economy, right. to, to any you know, control over the flow of energy is just enormous. And, and we, unless we proceed from the best science possible, we're likely to, again, cause more harm than good. But I, I do think that there is a scientific consensus that there... The, Global warming is a real man-made effect. I, I, I would take it, issue with that, which was just that very point. Which is that there's a consensus. That very point, right. I, yeah, I would, um, I would uh, challenge the, the nature uh, of the consensus. And, and do, you, do you agree with, mean, do you agree that with their conclusion, or are you saying that there is no consensus, that there's disagreement? I, I, think, there is, I think there is disagreement, and then, I mean, I, I realize that, uh, you know, there are a lot of climatologists, a lot of people who are, a lot of scientists who are, you know, even tangentially involved in global warming who say that it's happening, but I think you have to look at, you know, the federal government puts, spends about $2 billion a year on climate research, and all that money goes to scientists who say that, yes, climate change is happening, because once they start, once they stop saying that climate change is not happening, they're not going to be getting the $2 billion anymore, so there's a sort of institutional bias in promoting the hysteria. Um, are there any indep- are there any independent ones that are more reliable, say, in or non politically uh, based? You know, I don't I don't really uh, put too much stock in you know the independence of uh, scientists necessarily. I mean, I'd rather look at their scientific data first. But I, right. I mean, I just you know there there is this situation where you know skeptical climatologists, um, you know, they they are not funded to do research. Um, there's, no, there's no research money going to them, so you don't hear from them as much. I mean, they can't afford the media releases. They can't afford, you know, they're not supported by environmental groups. Um, you know, they don't have the power of federal agencies, so you don't get to hear from them as much. I mean, it's a real, you know, there's a little cadre of people that uh, I, I work with on this issue and um, it's been quite a struggle to get the skeptical voice on climate change hurt because we're just we're just so so underfunded. Well, uh, one of the one of the arguments has put forward is that uh, you know we we man-made activity is increasing the amount of CO2 that is being you know, dumped into the atmosphere. 
And we have a pretty good idea about how much CO2 is going into the atmosphere. Saying that you know, a lot of it is natural, is, I think, is misleading if you're counting you know, cow flatulence, because having vast herds of domestic animals is actually a man-made you know, situation. Um, so that you have to, I don't think you could dismiss that as quote-unquote natural. But also, we also know, I mean, the greenhouse effect is a well-understood phenomenon. There's not a lot of mystery as, as to what's going on there. So it stands to reason that if we, you know, we know the greenhouse effect, we know how it works, we're increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, why wouldn't that increase temperature over time? Um, I, you know, whether or not you consider, you know, <laughs> cow flatulence man-made or not, uh, I still maintain that well over 99% of greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere are natural. Um, if you look at, let's just take the 20th century, for example, um, most half the warming in the 20th century occurred uh, before 1940, but the vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions occurred after 1940. And if you look at the period 1940 to 1970, when greenhouse gas emissions were really taking off, there was actually global cooling, which in 1975, the alarmists like Stephen Schneider were worried about, you know, looming ice age. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, a thousand years ago, the Vikings were cultivating Greenland. Since, you know, it, starting in the 14th century with the advent of the Little Ice Age, it became a frozen wasteland. Um, mm -hmm. And the Little Ice Age lasted until about the 19th century, which you know, happens to coincide with the Industrial Revolution. Um, it's, it's quite possible that, you know, the warming we've witnessed over the last 200 years is simply just, you know, our rebound from the Little Ice Age. Of course. I mean, that, that is the, uh, the standard sort of anti-global warming, anti warming argument, that the warming that we are recording is just a natural fluctuation in you know, worldwide well, temperatures. And, and we know, we <laughs> know that this occurs. No, I mean, I agree. That's, that is the argument to make, and, and it's legitimate, because we don't know. That the bottom line is we don't know if the warming that we're recording is man-made or if it is what would, would it happen anyway. Uh, the, the, I think the big problem is, is that you know, because we're trying to predict long-term you know, uh, global climate effects, there's going to be re huge room for skepticism in the kind of data that we can get yeah. un until it, it, it's, you know, it's largely occurred. And one argument is that, well, by the time we know for sure, and we've basically convinced all the skeptics that global warming is real, it's too late to do anything about it. So you know, we do have to accept a certain amount of uncertainty and make the, basically the best judgment we can based upon the data that we do have. And perhaps that could be used to justify some reasonable environmental measures to, to limit greenhouse well, gases. Well, I mean, I guess I would say in response to that, you know, forgetting about arguing about the science anymore, you know, even if the Kyoto Protocol were fully implemented, um, I think by 2050, it it, uh, it it would reduce or avoid a potential 700th of a degree of warming at mm -hmm. an astronomical right. cost. Um, and How is that determined? You know, by the amount of CO2 yeah. that they, the protocols would prevent. And they could tie that directly to a, a drop in temperature or a change in temperature? Yeah, I think the... the I mean, the general, the, the general circulation models they have can tell you, you know, based on how much carbon dioxide is emitted and, uh, 
uh, you know, they'll give you an answer. Now, you've got to keep in mind that those models have never been validated against historical temperatures, so for whatever, who knows what they're worth. Mm. Um, and I also, right. you know, there's also this assumption, and I think that you know, this is very important. Um, you know, we talked earlier about how climate changes naturally. You know, it, climate, you know, wh whether, whether we're releasing CO2 or not, climate is going to change. The question is, is it going to get warmer, mm -hmm. is it going to get cooler? You know, if it gets cooler, you know, that could be a bad thing for agriculture, and we depend on agriculture. If it gets warmer, uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, just because it gets warmer, uh, there may be benefits. So we don't know what climate change holds for us. I mean, right. I mean, obviously an extreme change would not be good, but even a mild, cooler change would not be good. We're not going to be able to keep the temperature the same. I mean, that's just impossible. Uh, so mm -hmm. who's to say that it's like increase is going to be bad. Yeah, we obviously don't know. I mean, there are, there are concerns about, for example, decreasing the salinity in the North Atlantic and shutting down the, you know, the, the oceanic currents, even with a slight increase in temperature. But again, these are theoretical. Well, what about, you know, obviously, right, I mean, hurricanes? What about hur hurricane strengths? Uh, you know, a lot more F5s potentially with a, with a warmer Earth. You know, um, I'm glad you brought that up because the uh, the guy who I think first advanced the idea that global warming was going to intensify hurricanes, Kerry Manuel from MIT, uh, he's got this great posting on his website. Um, you know, there's been a lot of attempts to link uh, Katrina with global warming. I mean, he says right, that is right. he says that is absurd. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. using that word, you know, he he says that you know even even if there is more more intense hurricanes, it's not clear that, you know, these hurricanes are really uh, hitting, hit, you know, making landfall in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, okay, let's say we have more intense hurricanes in the Atlantic, you know, uh, if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, you know, who cares? So let's, let's change gears a little bit. Um, I also noticed on your website, an one thing that caught my attention was an article you had written about the government's attack on the Atkins diet. Um, basically, this is a University of Arkansas researchers claiming that high-carbohydrate, low-fat diets um, actually promote weight loss above and beyond a reduction in calories. And, you know, you did what any good you know, science journalist should do. You actually read the original study, which showed that they were decreasing the, – the people who the, – who, had the high-carbohydrate diet. losing weight were actually eating Right, less. they were consuming 400, 600 fewer <laughs> calories a day, or they were working out, or, you know, and or they were exercising. Right, or something. Um, which is, you know, exactly, I've actually written quite a bit about this topic myself, although I, I've looked at the Atkins, the pro-Atkins research and found the same thing, that the, the studies would show weight loss actually um, it all correlates with fewer caloric in intake. So, I, I, again, I couldn't find any of your writings except um, criticizing the anti-Atkins, you know, people who you, who you said were defending the government, the nanny government, basically. But so, what? What? What, what is? I guess my question is, what's your take on the Atkins diet itself? Well, I don't really know. I don't. You know, I don't. I don't. Uh, would never profess to say that one diet is superior to another. I think that for individuals and their lifestyles, everyone is going to have you know, something different. What I objected to about that study is that, you know, I, I think that, you know, the federal government has a lot invested in certain myths. And, and the myths are that, 
you know, saturated fat is bad for you, salt is bad for you, cholesterol, all, all these things are bad for you, and anything that runs into, you know, their dogma is bad. And, and Atkins did that in spades because Atkins, you know, said you could eat, you know, larger amounts of fat and cholesterol and, you know, as long as you limited your carbs, you'd be okay. So that you know, was a politically incorrect diet, and I think they went after it for political reasons. And, uh, you know, I objected to that. I'm not defending the Atkins diet because I think it works. I mean, who knows? I mean, I, it, it, whether you lose weight or not depends on how much you eat, how active you are, your genetics, lots of reasons, not necessarily specific diet. Right. Well, I think I agree with your, your assessment of diet. I mean, my bottom line point from, from reading all of the studies is that uh, and just you know, from what we know about basic physiology, is the the only thing that really matters is calories in, calories out. And in terms of weight loss, just specifically weight loss, it doesn't matter what form those calories take. Um, so I would see the, the exact same criticism applies to the the pro Atkins diet you know, research as well. But you, know, you kind of lose me a little bit when you, you sort of pr premise your you premise your your opinion on the fact that the government is defending their dogma, and I'm not, I'm not really sure that that's what it's all about because independent of the food pyramid and and the government programs, there is there is a you know a, a uh, academic nutrition scientists who have been you know happily doing research over the last thirty and forty years uh, who. You know, I think I objected to the claims of the the low, the extreme low carbohydrate diet claims based yeah. upon the science, not on some government agenda. Yeah. Uh, the, the fact is that the claims they were making were not, were did not size up well with the evidence, did not um, correlate with what we know about human physiology, and and they, you know, they, you know, they also exceeded the evidence. And it's true we we don't know the implications of a lot of this. Um, and there were a lot of interesting studies done which were curious, like the fact that on a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet for six months or so, people's cholesterols actually went down. That was, that's, that was surprising. Uh, yeah. But it was also wasn't, certainly was not covered up or denied by the government. It was just that doesn't mean that a, a lifetime of, of a high-fat diet is a good thing for you. I, I'm, not, I'm not defending the Atkins diet. I don't, you know, uh, I have no... Uh, no dog right, in that race. Right. Um, so, I, but you know, I do know and I do have experience with government agencies who will hold on to a position, however ridiculous it is. Um, you know, a good one on a dietary. Good example of this on a dietary issue is the um, you know NIDDK, National Institute for Digestive and Kidney Disease, um, and their and their restrict and their recommendations on salt. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're they're. You know, there is absolutely not a single scientific study that shows that, um, you know, re reducing uh, salt consumption in healthy people uh, reduces blood pressure right. and improves their right. health. There's not a single I study. I totally agree with you they, there. Yet, yet they maintain, and, and it, you know, last year they came out with a recommendation that, you know, Americans should cut their dietary salt in half. It's just crazy. What's the motivation? Why? I don't know. Why would I, they do that? I can say is that they have maintained, you know, in the 70s, uh, when all this sort of, you know, health, health and dietary science became uh, very much in vogue, you know, they just latched onto it, and they think that if, if they have to go back and say, well, salt is really okay, then they think they lose some credibility. And I think there's a lot of examples. As of well, they should. 
you know, dietary fiber is a great example. No, I, I actually, I, dis I disagree with you, Perry. I think that if they change their position, that would actually gain them credibility. You lose scientifically. You, you yeah. lose credibility when you maintain a wrong position in spite of evolving scientific evidence. I, I agree. I agree with that. But I meant that if they change their position after the the lack of evidence has been around for so long. I think that that's that's demonstrative of their actual but you, position. I, I would I would argue that they lose more credibility though by resisting the evidence. But that is you, that's probably true. Yeah, somehow they're able to keep resisting. I mean, Gary Tobbs wrote a great article in Science Magazine a few years ago about uh, NIH and salt, and, and uh, you know they unabashedly <laughs> they're lower their salt lower their salt recommendations even more. So. Interesting. Gotta I can't believe there's a bureaucratic stubbornness. Is there an anti-salt lobby out there that we're not aware of? You know, there's, I mean, there's lots of these crazy notions out there. Dietary fiber, you know, that be, that was very popular. Dietary fiber reduces the risk of colon cancer, and and do, I mean, do you know where that came from? Some British missionary in the late 1960s, early 1970s, sort of casually observed that people in Africa had reduced rates of colon cancer, and he kind of casually related right. to high-fiber diets, and that became all the rage. Right. That's the extent but of the evidence. there's not a single study that's ever shown that high-fiber diets reduce there, colon There were cancer. some recent studies which actually show a lack of a, of a benefit from, from high-fiber diets. Wow. So, I mean, I agree with you. I think that the, the, the phenomenon that are at work here, one, is the media will latch on to very preliminary findings and make, make a very bottom-line recommendation, like Oprah lower, you know, prevents heart attacks, when, in fact, the, the, the evidence is very preliminary. And then, you know, five, ten years later, the research sorts itself out, and maybe the effect is either real or it's not real. And if it's not, you know, uh, you don't really hear much about it. It just becomes sort of fixed in the minds of the, of the public. I also think there's a lot of bureaucratic inertia at work. I'm not sure that I agree with the assessment um, that there's a resistance to... Uh, or a, a dogmatic resistance to adjusting the recommendations based upon the scientific evidence, especially within the scientific institutions. I mean, obviously that occurs to some degree, but that, oh, that usually works itself out. For example, with the food pyramid, you, you, uh, the, the, old, the, the old food pyramid, you, you know, the one that was out through the 90s, was old only, I think, really just because of, of bureaucratic sort of inertia and laziness. It was just outdated, and they didn't bother to update it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of their bottom-line recommendations were wrong because the science was just a little bit outdated. Uh, but they've revised their food pyramid based upon, I think, a pretty reasonable assessment of, the, of, the, of, the, of our current evidence, and which is in line with what independent ac academicians are saying. So I do think there's the potential to for the government to revise their recommendations based upon new evidence. I think the, the, the sense that I get, and this is, I guess, sort of a soft criticism, I agree with, you know, I've read a lot of what you wrote on, on the websites, and obviously you're, you know, I agree with most of the stances that you take, although it just it seemed to me that you almost started from the position that the government was wrong because it's the government. And you know, sometimes, don't you? Is that, maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe I'm a libertarian. I, I had to think to myself. <laughs> maybe I'll tell you what. Give me well, an example where I the think government's the, right. The, the latest, <laughs> the latest food pyramid got it right. I, mean, I think they fixed it based upon the evidence. Now, five years from now, it'll probably be wrong again. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I don't, I don't even really know what that means. I mean, it's right. not like there's a right answer for any one person. Um, you know. 
people can survive uh, on a variety of diets, and it really depends on a number of factors, your lifestyle, your genetics. Um, it's just, you know, a food pyramid, I, I'm not even quite sure what the value of that is. It's well, I think it's basic bottom line recommendations about what a healthy diet w would be like. Not to give very specific recommendations, but just to say, you know, you're probably better off if you eat more fruits and vegetables. And But, you know, it's kind of like it's it's designed for this you know, theoretical average person, which doesn't exist. You know, all the nutrition labels that we see and in, in all, like, you know, two, uh, the RDAs and, uh, you know, recommended calories of 2,000 calories per day, you know, that's all uh, right. designed for menopausal women. It's got nothing to do with, I mean, 2,000 calories a day for me, I would be dead. I mean, I'm just six foot, about 200 pounds. I'd be no, I mean, yeah, I you're you're definitely right. <laughs> I mean, 2,000 calories goes quick, that's for the sure. The labels are ridiculous. The, uh, I, I do not think that um, the fact that, you know, the, the, you know, the types of foods that are, that are more healthy or less healthy has to do too much with the individual. The, not the amount of calories that you eat, absolutely, that's based upon your metabolism, your size, your body weight, your, whether you're male or female, absolutely. Just having one, you know, 2,000 calories per day for muscle, everyone, obviously, is ludicrous. Uh, but... I don't know. I don't think that saying that you know, people's genetics and, and, and other uh, metabolic factors differ invalidates the basic concepts that you, know, you need to have a varied diet that has a, you know, minimal amounts of vitamins and minerals, and you're, you're probably better off eating you know, a food that was not too calorie-dense, and you're probably better off not eating you know, you know, a diet that was filled too much. Now, you see, you, you, previously you said that the saturated fat thing was a myth. I'm not sure that I agree with if, that, that specific claim either. Well, I mean, you can, you know, I'll, uh, if you look at the Harvard Nurses Study, for example, you know, a study of 90,000 women for 25 years, you'll find that there is no association between saturated, saturated fat intake and heart disease. And I doubt that it's just a figment of that study. Um, and the reason I, you know, I got into this because I started looking at the whole trans fat thing. You remember, you know, saturated fat was bad, no right. butter. And in the 70s and 80s, we switched Even to margarine, worse, yeah. and now margarine's trans fats. So they're horrible. So we got to go to something else. <laughs> and you know, and, and I looked into that, and I, you know, I learned that it's basically this guy at Harvard University, Walter Willett, who, you know, he's he's behind virtually every trans fat study, and he has succeeded. In, in, in railroading trans fats, even though there's not a single uh, study of humans that shows trans fat is associated with heart disease risk. Um, when the National, when National Research Can uh, Council came out with their report a couple years ago, they didn't cite any epidemiologic studies right. about trans fats. They just cited animal studies that reported increases right. in, in uh, LDL. And uh, you know, to me, that is just not not. A yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of weaknesses in that research. I mean, you, you can't do the kind of you know class one studies that you would like to do, where you you know force feed people trans fat and other people you know so-called good fat, and then see well, who does better over time. You can't you just can't do those studies for, ethic, <laughs> right. for ethical reasons. So you were, so we're left with yeah. sort but of the, these, the secondary evidence, which is inferential epidemiological or animal data. Uh, and it's, there's, again, there's always going to be room for skepticism with that kind of evidence. Yeah, I mean, these are all fine debates to have. I don't, you know, I don't begrudge uh, Walter Willett or anybody else from raising these issues and debating them. Where I begrudge them and where we go into the junk science is when, 
you know, they they come up with these, you know, at best preliminary studies, and then right. immediately jump to the policy conclusion. We must do becomes gospel. It becomes gospel, right? And yeah. uh, I, that's I really have a problem with that. And there is no, nope, I agree with you there. I mean, I, I do think that the majority of government policy yeah, is based definitely. upon either too preliminary evidence or you know hysterically hyped evidence or or claims. You know, and, and 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 worse, you know, you can't even really check. Uh, for, I, I hate to keep picking on Willow, but you really can't even check his work because um, he maintains some sort of, you know, even though his data is financed by taxpayers, he maintains some proprietary control over it so that you know no one can get it and do independent research to verify his results. Right. And mm-hmm. you know that's just not the scientific method. Are you familiar with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Whelan? Yes, I am. I know her very well. Yeah, I imagine you would. So she is the president of the American Council on Science and Health, of which I am a member, by the way. And she, she again, has a very, very similar um, approach. The, the American Council on Science and Health is dedicated to exposing basically bad science in public health policy. Right, right. Um, I just received one of their latest pamphlets called Good Stories, Bad Science, a guide for journalists to the health claims of consumer activist groups. Uh, again, very reminiscent of, of, of what you're doing. Um, so I just was curious, you know, if you, do you have any direct involvement with the, with the Council on Science and Health, or you just know her because uh, you know, of I've done overlapping agenda? I've done things with them in the past. I know I know Beth very well. I know many of uh, her members and board members very well, and I support what she does. And I would say 99% of the time we agree on uh, on, right. on things. If there weren't 1% of the time, you'd have to wonder, right? <laughs> plus, plus or minus one percent. <laughs> I mean, even well, we've had some disagreements on some tobacco issues, but right. Well, well you, okay, you bring that up. So Elizabeth Whelan has been very vocal. I mean, although she um, sort of takes two positions with tobacco, the, the, the two sort of bottom line positions are: yes, it causes cancer and, and is a bad thing, but the secondhand smoke evidence is total bunk. That's be, be, I'm not sure if, that's, if you agree with that, that with my assessment, that's her sort of bottom line take on the tobacco evidence. But you, you said you disagree with her at, at, on, on what point specifically? Um, well, I, I agree with you that, you know, her position on sec- – I think where we've always had our difference was on secondhand smoke. And I think that, uh, that you know, if she, if she is now saying that secondhand smoke doesn't appear to be the risk that – you know the EPA and the anti-tobacco groups say are saying that it is. That's somewhat of a switch from her older position. Mm-hmm. So um, I, saying agree, in the I don't think I don't think secondhand smoke is a health risk. Uh, direct smoking certainly is a health risk, especially right. if you smoke too much. Right. Um, she did not always hold up. We are moving closer to that 100. percent Okay. So, that, oh, so, so you thought that she's, she was against, oh, she was uh, endorsed the claim that secondhand smoke causes yeah. is a significant risk factor for lung cancer, yes. Yes. Uh, which you took exception to. Well, at least the, the most recent interview I saw with her, which in fact was on Penn and Teller's show Bullshit, yes. was where they covered this topic and they interviewed her for it, and she you okay. know, was was endorsing their position, which was mm-hmm. that the evidence basically does not support that conclusion. Then we have no issues. So okay, yeah. so that, that was the that was the one percent, huh? 
So, which is interesting because, you know, as you know, I'm a, I'm a physician and an academic, so it's a, this is an old issue for scientists, sort of confusing absolute risk and relative risk, which is basically what they did with the secondhand smoke data. They sort of gave figures which were um, basically comparing relative risk between you know people who were exposed to secondhand smoke and who weren't, and and the, so the numbers can sound huge. You know, for example, like you say there's a threefold you know relative risk of lung cancer, but if it goes from one to three out of a million people, it's really only two people out of a million. So, which is the absolute risk. So it turns out if you really look at the the the, the studies that were done, the absolute risk was very very low. I mean, there's a very few in, extra cases of of lung cancer. If, if there was a risk at all. Right. Well, I mean, if you, yeah, I mean, you could challenge sort of the statistical significance of the studies. But even if you just take the, their own data at face value, it, yes. it, it doesn't really support a huge risk. Um, but but the press latched onto the relative risk, which was I believe something like a sixty to or seventy percent increase, which sounds huge. Right. Um, well, the, I think the press latched onto yeah, this is the way that we're going to beat up the tobacco industry, which we hate, and they right. did right to, to great effect. Right. Absolutely, you know, it certainly was the tipping point. You know that data that you know, okay now not only are you not harming yourself, you're harming other innocent right. people, innocent right. bystanders. That you know, from my recollection, was the tipping point of public opinion and policy opinion against you know smokers in general and the tobacco industry, etc. Right. And that's I mean, it, was a, it was a strategy that the uh, anti-tobacco industry started working on in the yeah. 70s and, and it worked. paid off in 1993. Yeah, yeah. 93, right? Now you can't smoke in a bar in New York City anymore. Or a lot of places. I'm not a smoker myself, and I can't tell you how many uh, girlfriends when I was younger who smoked, you know, I stopped going out with. Mm-hmm. And I find, it, I find it odd having to defend, my, defend uh, mm-hmm. you know, the tobacco yeah. industry on this yeah. issue. But I feel no, exactly the same way. Exactly. I feel exactly I, the same way. Smoking is repugnant, but I, know, I, so, so is this. I don't like secondhand smoke, but uh, hey, if it's not going to cause me cancer, then... Uh, you know that's the fact, and you gotta you gotta live up to the fact. Steve, uh, was just uh, <laughs> going through the uh, going through your website here, and uh, back in late August, uh, you had written an article for FoxNews.com called "Another Stem Cell Fast One." Um, maybe uh, you can give us a, a little quick summary as to uh, what your position on uh, on this is. I guess what well, my overall position is that. Um I'm, I'm skeptical of embryonic stem cell research. My skepticism stems from the notable lack of success the federal government has had in the war on cancer, where we've spent about you know, upwards of $50 billion and have actually produced extremely little. And cancer, conceptually, uh, is a much should be an easier riddle than uh, making embryonic stem cells work. Um, and I just, you know, I have little confidence, and I think private investors would back me up on this, that anyone will have any success with embryonic stem cells um, in any reasonable time frame to justify public expenditures. You're saying it should be private, but private expenditures. Yeah, I mean, I, that's, yeah, that's where I, it should I don't be think, I don't think limited it should be to. illegal, uh, I, but I think that a much better case needs to be made to get public funding for embryonic stem cell research. Yeah, it's definitely, embryonic stem cell research is one of those topics where it's, 
any, I think, meaningful application of it is far enough in the future that nobody knows how it's going to pan out. It could be a total dead end. We, we have not established it yet to enough of a degree that we could, that we could meaningfully extrapolate you know, uh, where the research is going to go. I think the thing that has but got the people... potential, though. Yeah, that's exactly what has people starry-eyed. I was just, just about to say that the theoretical potential is so huge that that, that has generating all of the interest. But you're right. The fact is, it's, it's a, it, is a, it is kind of a scientific long shot. Although, you know, that's... That brings, yeah. up, that brings up a very good question about how do we decide what to fund? Do we, do we want to only fund research projects which are just, you know, taking one baby step beyond where we are right now and we sort of have a very good idea of what, what we're going to get out of it? Or should we do some kind of pie-in-the-sky basic science research and just hope it leads to something? Um, you know, I mean, my basic view is that uh, little, little good comes from uh, – federal government mucking around in scientific research. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my position, if there's something worth pursuing that, that private investors, maybe this is the libertarian in me, right, right. Pri- private investors will, uh, you know, chase that down. Uh, you know, I've got, we've, we've spent 30 years on cancer. Countless, countless numbers of people have walked, run, rode countless miles Billions and billions of dollars. We're we making steady progress. Happens. We're making steady progress with treating cancer. Cancer is not going to be anything that's going to be cured by a single treatment or a single advance. It's not even a single disease. It's a thousand well, different diseases. Oh, well, absolutely. But it's I mean, what you know? When when are we going to have some? But people are looking for uh, you know tangible results. And the tangible results are there, but they're just in a thousand baby steps. They're, the survival curves for most cancers are improving over every yeah, decade. Well, yeah, but you know, a lot of that could be early detection. Some of it, right? But some of it's right. early detection. Then, but you yeah. put some of it's improved chemotherapy, improved, improved, you know, ther- therapeutic yeah. modalities. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I can go to the NIH website and look at their you know uh, achievements over the last three decades, and they really only have two achievements for cancer. One is Childhood leukemia, which they can do a pretty good job of yeah. now, mm-hmm. yeah. and testing for cancer, which is what Lance Armstrong uh, survived. Right. Right. Uh, after that, I mean, it's tough. You, you, they, they really don't know. And uh, you know, I mean, we're getting so desperate now that you know we've got these drugs like Herbitox, mm-hmm. which which seem to help 10% of the people in a study. And uh, I'm not, you know, and it helped them live an extra two months. And I'm not quite sure that's really a result. And that, right. you know, there's just lots of questions that I have with that. So, No, it's definitely that, you know, cancer, I think if you asked anybody 50 years ago, they would have said, you know, that by the turn of the century, will we have cured cancer? And most people would have thought, sure, of course we will. I mean, it's 50 years from now. I can't imagine they wouldn't have cured, you know, cured it. But it's really proven to be a very, very, very tough nut right. to crack. And, and you so know, no and the question. government... The government's solution is just throw money at it. Mm-hmm. If we spend the money, we'll get the results, and that is <laughs> that is just not true. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, and I do, I do you know clinical research in ALS, which is another area where we have made negligible progress. And there are a lot of people, you know, definitely there's a lot of public interest in driving money for research, and they want money to find a cure, and they think that that's going to do it. Uh, and I agree that you know you can't predict if it, if it's going to to produce anything tangible or not. Of course, I'm, I'm a huge supporter of biomedical research. I think that even though the pace may be modest, 
uh, it, we're still making a steady advance. The hype definitely does overplay the, the potential benefits of research, and that is definitely driven by the need to get research dollars. Hype brings in the dollars, and I've seen even very well-respected you know, scientists sell their own research, you know, oversell it to mm-hmm. the, to the the activist groups or the funding groups or whatever, because that's how you get the money. You know, you're not going to get money by saying, well, you know, after about <laughs> 10 or 20 years, you know, we maybe will make some oh, you know, yeah. modest, you know, improvement, but, you know, we're nowhere near a cure, so just forget about that in your lifetime. Yeah. That yeah, may be, the, 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 right. that's the brutal truth, but no, you know, People who are beating the bushes for funding don't tell the brutal truth. They, they paint a rosy picture of what right. they... So, but what's so the alternative? What, what, what the embryonic stem cell researchers want to do is you know, sell this hope to Congress so that Congress yeah. will open up the federal coffers and the money will just start flowing. And it's not going to be a lot of money. I mean, it's not yeah. the kind of money that's going to bankrupt the country. It's not like yeah. Medicare or Social Security or anything like oh, that. Boy. Yeah, but... But I mean, it's just you know, from my from this science perspective, you know, giving people false hope is worse than giving them no hope at all. Well, I, I agree that the government should not be in the business of deciding what to fund. I think that, but I also don't think that it should just be totally left to private industry. I, I, I believe in the NIH and and you know, government public funding for for research projects. I think it should be. Um, you, you should, as you say, it shouldn't be outlawed or banned. I, you know, I think federal, if you're going to fund biomedical research, fund whatever the scientists want to study. And, and you know, the re, sort of review process that exists now, it's, of course, it's, in, it's imperfect. There's some political aspects to it. But right. the, the basic concept is a good one. You basically have research scientists review applications and decide, you know, hopefully on the merits of the application, which projects should get funded. I think that's the system that we should have. And if, if, if somebody wants to do stem cell research and they can make a good case for it, then, then you know they could vie with every all the other ideas that are out there for the funding. I don't, I yeah, I mean, I've, I've been told that you know now there are some adult stem cell researchers who are having trouble getting support from, you know, like the you know various disease groups, you know, diabetes, what have you, yeah, because yeah. while they'd be happy to get some progress with adult stem cell research. You know, they don't want to waste their political capital on that. They right. They want to spend it on embryonic stem cell research, which is, you know, you know, like it or not, a lot of people find it controversial. Yeah. You, you have the oddball like me. I, I, I have no confidence that it's ever going to produce anything. And, um, I think I think there's – it can. I think there's – again, the, I think the science is sound. The potential there is, is actually quite enormous. Uh, it's just I think the only – the barriers are technological – and we just can't predict whether or not we'll be able to overcome them or not. I hope they learn how to turn those little suckers off. I, I right, that's the, that's the big problem is that you, you got little are, cancers. I know exactly. That is that <laughs> is probably going to be one of the biggest hurdles is controlling right. The, the and then you go back. Then you go back wow. to the war on cancer, which they haven't saw. I mean, you know, it's it's really a daunting problem. But it is interesting that you know fundraising for biomedical research can actually hurt research. Which would sound, you know, a little counterintuitive, but I'll give you my own personal experience with ALS research, is that in the last 10, 20 years, there have been a lot of patient groups and, and other, you know, grassroots sort of ALS research groups that have been raising a lot of money for clinical ALS research. But the problem is they've really been pushing for, for a cure. They want... They want a study that could potentially find a cure, and that, and because that's where they bring in money, researchers follow the money. You have no choice but to follow the money because without money, you're not doing anything. 
Um, so a lot of researchers and a lot of the research has shifted towards clinical ALS research, which I do. You know, it's not, I'm not bashing clinical ALS research. But I think the problem is that there's been a – and now there's an imbalance between clinical research and basic science research. And I just don't think we understand enough about the, about the disease to, to do a high-probability clinical research. So I think we're wasting a lot of money doing low-probability clinical research, and we're not doing enough basic science research. I think we really just have to go back to the drawing board. Um, but there the, you have well-meaning you know, groups raising money for biomedical research, and in fact, they may be slowing down the progress in the, in the field that they're interested in, ironically. Yeah, I know. It's, it's got to be the scientists that, you know, if we're going to have public dollars spent, it yeah. ought to be the scientists, um, you know, chasing uh, Whatever they think is interesting. Most likely prospects yeah. with the resources they have, rather than these pipe dreams driven by Christopher Reeve and Hollywood right. celebrities. It's just right. drives mm -hmm. me crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and again, the other thing is, if you just look historically at scientific progress, the things that people thought were going to be the, the sort of the big science advances of the future really never pan out. Like, you know, weren't we all supposed to be in flying cars by this year? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, well. and the things that uh, the real advances come out of the blue. Nobody anticipated them, but they sort of were, were byproducts of scientists doing, you know, research projects because they were interesting, not because they had any apparent application. Yeah, I just think we should need to let Good scientists, you know, do do what they want, follow what's interesting. Yeah, and then you have, you know, also the scientific, the medical advances that are just accidental, like uh, penicillin. Sure. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there was no one, no no bench scientist sitting down figuring out how can, how can we break down uh, cell walls of bacteria. Right. Well, it was just a, it was a lucky observation that was that uh, was capitalized by you know, Fleming made the observation and capitalized on it. Uh, and coined the phrase, you know, fortune favors the prepared mind, and that's a lot of science as well. So we were, I think we're, we're, we're almost out of time, so um, just... I got something quick, Steve. Go ahead, go ahead, Bob. Uh, Steve, have you ever heard of, um, you, I'm sure you've probably heard of nanotechnology? Yes. Um, so you've probably heard it in reference to things like the gray goo problem and uh, you no, know, out, of, I, out of control... I, 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 no, to be honest with you, I don't really don't know that much about it. Bob's than, uh, a big nano proponent here, Steve. Oh, oh. Be careful. Well, the only thing I, I, mean, I don't know anything about it other than environmentalists hate it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah well, right. One, one big, you know. So therefore, I must be for it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the big issue is the uh, the big thing that's got people uh, going crazy is the whole so-called gray goo problem, where you've got you have these little nano replicators that all they do is replicate themselves until yeah. there's nothing left uh, to change into themselves. So you, you turn the biosphere to, uh, you know, dust in, you know, in, in a week. And that's like the, the extreme, let's you know, not do situation. That. Yeah, let's not do that. But that's just, you know, the things that people talk about. Can't you step about. on them and, and end it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like stepping, you know, you like stepping so. on dust. But it's, uh, you know, the, the fears, those kind of fears <laughs> weren't found. I thought, you, I thought you might have been, you might have heard of something like that. So, Steve, just one you know, final thought to close on. So what are your plans for, for the future? Do you have any big dreams or, or goals in terms of junk science or you know, any projects or publications? Well, I, you know, I got to... We, we're right now. We're kind of overwhelmed with the whole global warming thing. It just yeah. seems to be the most because of Katrina. No, it's just Even prior it's to the that. hottest mm -hmm. topic out there. It's swallowing okay. up everything. Yeah. Um, you know, junk science is kind of in a downswing. Right, you know, it was, the '90s was like the heyday of junk science. I mean, mm -hmm. you couldn't 
every week, you know, between the New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of Medical Association, American Medical Association, and the Lancet, British Medical, there was always a new study coming out, you know, with a health scare or a scam. So, so there was a lot to do. Um, you know, since since the Bush administration came into power, uh, for some reason, there's been a lot less of that. But global warming has just been a hot issue, and it's it's the only one people really care about. When I write a Fox column. Uh, the number of comments I get back from people is incredible. So we're we're kind of stuck on that for a while. All right. Well, stay tuned. It, it, would, it would definitely something that we're following with interest. Again, I'm uh, still a little bit on the fence about it, though. I'm <laughs> leaning towards I'm, I'm leaning towards the fact that there's at least well, at least enough there to be concerned about. And executive directors with you, Steve Malloy. Keep up the good <laughs> work. Anytime you want. This is we'll have to. We'll have to agree to disagree a little bit about this, this that. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for being on the Skeptics okay. Guide to the Universe. We Thank enjoyed you. having you. Thank and you, Steve. For Bye-bye. our audience out there, thanks thanks for joining us on the Skeptics Guide. Till next week, this is your host, Stephen Novella. The Skeptics Guide to the Universe is a production of the New England Skeptical Society. For more information on this and other episodes, see our website at www.thenss.com.